Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I'm back behind a microphone for uh, for the first time in a while. I've been really busy since I've been back. Let me tell you a little bit of what's been going on. I got back from my transatlantic back to Salt Lake City around the 1st of April. I think actually April 3rd, April 4th, somewhere along there. And I don't know if you know, but we in Utah had one of the biggest snowfall years in our history. A great time for me to be sailing my boat when it was some of the best skiing we've ever had in Utah this last winter. So Unfortunately for that, where I have our house up at the ranch, which is about 7,300 feet in elevation, we had a lot of snow. And my wife, who was left alone while I was sailing across the Atlantic, who would normally live at the ranch year-round, moved back down to our house in Salt Lake City and stayed down there for, for a few months because there was no way we could keep the road from the house out to the main road up and down the valley open. Uh, she, she's ha- having some issues with her knee. She needs to have a full knee replacement, and that's scheduled for in July. But it was very difficult for her to get in and out of the tractor, which is a little Kubota B7800 with a snowblower on the front of it, to, uh, to blow the snow out. So anyway, I get back here, and the first weekend we head up to the ranch, and the snow has not been cleared from the, uh, from. it's about a quarter mile driveway that I have to clear out. So it's quite a long driveway. And it had built up and built up and settled and settled. And I got in the tractor and started it and started <laughs> trying to clear out the, the road into our house. And when I got up there, I saw the garage that I just spent a lot of money building over the last summer, the previous summer, my dream garage, my man cave, uh, had a lot of snow build up on it. It was hold, The roof was holding up just fine. It's designed for 90 pound per square foot snow load, and so it was holding up just fine. And it's a style of uh, garage which is like a barn. It's got a tall, big middle section and two lean-to sides. It's total 40 feet wide, so each of the lean-to sides is around 12 or 15 feet, I'm not exactly sure, and then the big main section in the middle. I've got two big garage doors in the middle and smaller garage doors on the outside. So when I was clearing out the snow, which literally took me at least five hours and many shear pins later to clear it out to the main road, uh, the garage was fine. I went back up a week later and the snow had slid off. It had warmed up. Finally, it had warmed up. And so the snow, which had been stuck to the roof, slid off. It's, steel, it's a steel roof. And finally, there was enough lubrication under the roof to make the snow slide off. And it all slid off the upper, the big middle section onto the, the lean-to sides and put a big dent on both sides of the roof. It dropped probably about six feet, seven feet down, but it was such a big slab of snow and ice that it came down on that it uh, that basically dented the entire roof all the way along the side on both sides of the lean-to 
unfortunately it's covered by insurance. I'm sure glad I got that insurance. But it's going to be another, I'm not be able to, go to get that fixed until August this year. My contractor said there's no way he's going to be able to get up there until then. He does not want to do it. It's more work tearing it apart and putting a new roof on than it was to build it for the first time. It's going to be a massive fix. So that's disappointing. I've been working with the insurance company on that and the steel vendor on that. So I've been very busy working on that. Now, how am I going to prevent this in the future? Well, first of all, we're probably never going to get a snowstorm like this in the future. This is once in a hundred year snowstorm we seem to have this last winter. But it may, so I'm going to be putting what they call snow fences, snow fences, it's snow stoppers. Basically, I'll be putting three full, full length, the length of the roof, or the width of the roof, whatever you want to say, uh, snow stops all the way, you know, up the roof. So there'll be three places where it will stop that upper roof from sliding down a big slab to the lower roof, and that'll prevent that in the future so I won't have this damage in the future. Now I don't think I'll do it on the lower roof because it just falls down to the the ground and there's nothing I need to worry about there unless I happen to be standing under it at which point in time it could easily kill somebody, bury them and kill them if you happen to be under that side of the roof when it occurs which is not likely. So that'll prevent it. So I'm dealing with that right now. I did have a pleasant call the other day. Dan Culpepper who you've listened to in the last couple months because I rebroadcast my interviews with him is doing another big adventure. He was driving across the country. He said, Franz, I'm in, I think it was in Nebraska at the time. He said, I'm coming through Salt Lake. You want to stop and get together? I said, sure. Why don't you just stay at the ranch? So he came up and stayed at the ranch for a night and uh, he was towing a trimaran that he had built himself, a small trimaran that he plans on entering on the race to Alaska. And uh, check that out. It's race and then the number two, alaska.com. That's a heck of a race. More of a, more of a marathon than a race. You cannot use any motors. It all has to be basically sailing or rowing all the way up. And he's set this up so he plans on doing a lot of rowing because I've sailed up in that area a lot. I spent five years... Before I sailed across the Atlantic, sailing up in the Northwest, and I love that area, but you end up motoring a lot. You have big tides you have to worry about. It's a major challenge to do this race, and he should be starting it uh, probably about the, no, probably in a couple days. I think it starts on the 8th of June, and I'm recording this on the 6th of June, so he'll be starting that race in a couple days. I'll be following him on the website, so you can follow it on the website. And the name of the boat is... Team Hornblower, if you want to follow him. So he stayed for a night, spent some time at the ranch, caught up with him. It was great spending time with him, and I wish him luck on this race. Okay, some big news I need to report, and I'm looking for input from you. I'm going to be selling my boat. It's got to the point where my family can't join me on the boat. I've got four grandkids. And uh, my boat is never going to be able to handle my family anymore. My wife is getting to the point where it's difficult for her to get in and out of the boat. She's 70 years old. I'm going to be 70 years old in July. 
And it's just a lot more work than I can handle at this point in time. It's becoming more and more difficult for me to do all the work on the boat that is required to keep the boat in the shape that I like to keep it in. So I put a web page on the website, which is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. There's another website called Medsailors. That's not my website. That's a, that's a charter website. But my website is medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And I put some details on my boat, which is up for sale. If you are interested in possibly buying my boat... I think the best way to really evaluate my boat is to actually sail my boat. And over the next two years, I plan on moving my boat up to Florida or maybe a little north of Florida. If I need to get out of the hurricane zone, maybe up to uh, South or North Carolina, wherever it is where I end up out of the hurricane zone and uh, leave it there to sell it. I'm going to next year, I plan on moving it up to Puerto Rico. Currently, it is in Trinidad, so I'm going to be doing the whole length of the Caribbean over the next two summers, no, excuse me, next two winters. Uh, I'll probably start sailing this next winter in January, maybe the middle of January, and sail for two, maybe two and a half months, working my way up to Puerto Rico. And so people that are interested in the boat, I will give the opportunity to join me for a period of time on that trip up. It will not be free. Basically, I will sell you an option to buy the boat. And if you decide to exercise that option, then the value of that option would be applied to the purchase of the boat. I'm thinking probably $2,000 for uh, sailing with me for a week so you can evaluate the boat. And that would be that $2,000 would be considered a, a, an option, a purchase option on buying the boat at the listed price. If you choose to exercise that option, then the price of the option would be applied to the boat. If not, then you lose that. I don't want to have people joining me on the boat just to get a free trip. That's not what I want. If I, if I want to have people for, with a free trip, then it's going to be people I know or friends or families or clients. If you're interested, people that are interested in my boat are a very specific group of people. It's a Lyle Hess design, Bristol Channel Cutter, hull number 71. The hull was built at Sam Moore's Boat Company in Costa Rica, California. I finished the boat myself. I took five years to finish it. I did a hell of a job finishing it. I'm proud of it. What sets my boat apart? from almost all the other Bristol Channel cutters that are for sale on the internet is my bulwarks are all teak. The problem with Sam Moore's building his boats in Costa Rica, California, or in, in Costa Mesa, California, was he used mahogany for the, uh, for the bulwarks, and he varnished them, and they look great until the varnish starts deteriorating, and you have to protect that wood. Well, with teak, you do not have to worry about it. Teak is designed to take anything you can throw at it. I've kept the boat when I'm not sailing the boat under a full cover for pretty much its entire life. So the bulwarks are all teak. You don't have to worry about sanding them. At one point in time, I put a sort of a semi-varnish on it called a Cetol. And it started flaking, and I just let it go. I just let the sun burn it all off. 
and you just can still see little pieces of it around where the sun never hit. But I don't have to worry about painting my boat and maintaining those bulwarks. That by itself is probably worth at least $30,000 because teak is not cheap, and it's much more expensive now than it was when I built it, but it wasn't cheap when I built the boat. So that's a big, big part of my boat that makes it different from most other boats that you will see for sale as I put an entire teak exterior. The only mahogany on my boat is the hatches, the forward hatch, the middle hatch, and uh, the the frame around the cockpit hatch. They've been kept in decent shape, in good shape. In fact, I'm having them varnished, stripped down and varnished this winter while I'm away. Uh, the main portholes are unique. They're cast oval portholes with were cast custom cast from patterns which were loaned to me by Larry Party. I have a full wind vane, which is the uh, wind vane that Larry Party designed. I built it myself. But Mike Anderson, my friend in Newport Beach, makes these commercially. I built my own, and it works great. It sailed me all the way across the Atlantic. I hardly touched the tiller all the way across the Atlantic. If you want to be a true blue water sailor, you need to have this wind vane on your boat if you have a Bristol Channel cutter. And if you don't, uh, then you need to have some sort of auto helm or self-steering. So anyway, if you have an interest in this, be sure you reach out to me. Uh, you can write me at Franz number one at medsailor.com franz1 at medsailor.com and we can talk about it i haven't put together my schedule for next winter but i'm going to basically break it up into about six different legs so probably join me for about a week at a time and then move on then the next crew would join me and so forth on on up to puerto rico where i i'm hoping to leave the boat over the next summer. I guess it's not the winter. I'm summering the boat now. Anyway, that's it. Now, today we're having an interview with Neil Fletcher. Neil joined me when I was down on the boat in Grenada this winter. He sailed the boat from Grenada down to Trinidad, where I put the boat out of the water. We talk about that briefly at the beginning of this podcast. But Neil's talking about taking his boat all the way across Sweden, in the Gott Canal, in the Gotta, I guess it's Gotta, G-O-T-A, Canal. So let's get on to that interview. I am on Skype with Neil, my good friend Neil Fletcher, who came to my rescue this summer when I was sailing in Grenada. I had developed sciatica, and I needed to get the boat from Grenada down to Trinidad and put the boat up, and... Uh, and I invited Neil already to come down and join me to go sailing, which he, he wanted to do and had accepted. But I said, Neil, instead of just sailing around Grenada with me, how about helping me get the boat down there and put the boat up? And you came to my rescue. I was a cripple, and I'm still a bit of a cripple now with this ridiculous sciatica. So I appreciate you helping me out there, Neil. And you wrote an article in British Weekly, which I'm going to try to link to on the show notes on this, talking about that, uh, that trip. So, Neil, okay. thanks for coming back, Neil. I appreciate it. Oh, anytime, Franz. Happy to be here. All right. Now, the last time we talked, you you said it's going to take another full episode just to talk about your trip through the Gata Canal in Sweden. And like I told you when we first started talking, I've got the website for 
Gata Canal up on my screen, which seems to be a really interesting and good website. But I want to hear your story on your trip through the Gata Canal and uh, how it went for you. So just go ahead and take it from the beginning. Okay, so I will give my customary um, disclaimer and apology to any native Swedish speakers for butchering their language. I'm actually quite good at languages, at least romance languages, but even after six or seven summers in Sweden, I still do have a hard time pronouncing some things. And some things for the listeners, it's best if I just pronounce it as it looks rather than as it sounds, because very often they're two different things. But um, yes, so the Swedes refer to this as the Jota Canal. I think the G is pronounced like a Y, but I'm going to say the Goda Canal just because it makes it easier. So the the canal itself is actually uh, considered one of the great feats of Swedish civil engineering. And it was built back in the early 19th century. And it won't surprise you to hear that the root of its, uh, the origin story was because it was all about money. Um, for the Swedish boats that were coming into Stockholm, they had to go through the Straits of Denmark right there by Copenhagen. And the Danes were exacting a tax to pass through. And um, so I think a few enterprising Swedes or the Swedish crown perhaps said, you know, we're tired of paying these Danes an excise fee. So that was why they built the canal from east to west, so they could obviate that. Um, so it was built between, I think, 1810 and about 1830. Most of the work was done by um, Swedish soldiers. Um, and it starts uh, at a little place called Mem, M-E-M, which is up an inlet about 70 nautical miles from, um, well, I would say 70 nautical miles from Stockholm. If you're in Stockholm and you want to get out into the archipelago proper, you basically have to head southeast about 20 nautical miles. If then you turn southwest and you go about 70 nautical miles, You'll come to the inlet, um, and it's, I, I don't know if it actually has a proper name, but the biggest big near, nearby town is called Soda Chopping, S-O-D-R-K-O-P-I-N-G. So that's basically where you start. There is a little, um, there is a little uh, office, customs office, right before, which I can talk about in a minute. But my rationale for all this, the sort of overview of it, was that I wanted to take the boat to the West Coast. I've been told by many Swedes... Uh, multiple times that the west coast is the best coast um, and I just thought it would be fun I I've been on inland waterways a lot uh, as a as a young child we had a boat on the river Thames outside of London and I had a lot of experience going through locks and there's just something about inland waterways that to me is just as charming as um, or as good as being out on the ocean it's just not quite as um, adventurous so I, it was an opportunity that I was happy to take Okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to locate solder jockeying or mem on the on Google Earth as we're talking. Um, solder malm. There's solder malm. Okay. Uh, anyway, to continue on. I will work on this. And uh, okay. So the so the nearest big town, which you can look while I'm chatting, is actually Norrköping, which is N O R R K O P I N G. That's the biggest town. And sort of just a little way south is soda chopping. And I guess one is north chopping and one is south chopping. But um, that's where it starts. So, um, yeah, I planned to go in 2020 and I bought my ticket. Um, the, the Swedes do this sort of stuff so well. There's a 
dedicated website and there's an organization for the upkeep and the maintenance and the transmission of information. And you pay a flat fee depending on whether you're going high season or shoulder season. And I think I'd paid in anticipation of going in the summer of 2020, I think I'd paid somewhere in the region of 800 US dollars. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit um, and that didn't happen. I didn't leave the country. The Yotta Canal wasn't open. Sweden wasn't open anyway. So uh, when I was able to go back in 2022, they gave me a greatly discounted rate. I still had to pay something, a couple of hundred dollars, I think. But basically, you pay the money and whether you're going in at the eastern end, which is, um, as I said, the town called Mem, M-E-M, which is just outside of soda shopping, or if you're coming from the western side where you would typically begin in Gothenburg, you pay a price, they give you a flag, which you then attach to your one of your stays, and that basically allows you, I think, to be in the canal for about a month, and you have almost unlimited use of the marinas, um, the marinas don't cost you anything. The laundry is 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 complimentary. The saunas are complimentary. And obviously you can buy whatever food and drink you want. But they give you as much or as little time uh, to go through there as you want within reason. I think we did it in um, about eight or nine days. But you can drag it out longer if you want to. Um, and what a lot of people do is they stop at the lakes that are on the way. Because although the as far as the Yotta Canal is concerned, is about 190 kilometres, I believe. That's not all um, canal. Only half of it is probably canal. The rest is lakes. And so they chose the the, the route of it quite... Um, it, it didn't happen by accident, let me put it that way, because there's three lakes that you can go through that are very decent sized. One is called Lake Roxen, one of them is called Lake Boren, and the other is Lake Vatten. And Lake, uh, Lake Vatten is um, about 18 miles, 18 nautical miles across, and, and there's plenty of places to stop if you want to. So if you want to take a couple of weeks or three weeks, you can certainly do that too. All right, I'm zoomed in on Google Earth, and I'm actually following the uh, canal. I'm going to put a, uh, a track up here so I don't lose it. So. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's... Everything is run with great Swedish efficiency, but it also has this sort of charm and old worldliness to it. I mean, the I probably the best place to start is the actual physical reality of going through a lock, which is definitely a learning curve, even for me. And I've done locks before, but that was 50 years ago. Um, so I'll try to explain without getting too technical how to do it. And you'll, your listeners will sort of understand that it does take probably three or four traverses of locks before you actually get an idea. So if you are if you are going upstream, um, when you come into the lock to start with, the water is going to be down at the bottom of the lock. And of course, it raises up to take you to the next level. However, you've got to remember that the lock, the lock walls are wet and you might be 50, there might be a 15 or 20 foot drop. So to accommodate that, there is always a little incline in front of the lock. So typically you'll pull over to a staging area um, and a couple of your crew will uh, disembark. Typically one takes the bow line, one takes the stern line, and then they walk the boat into the lock. Now um, you will want 
four or five fenders of various height on each side because it's it's a rough i mean it's been worn smooth but it's stone from the early 19th century and you don't want that to come in contact with your boat uh, if you can possibly avoid it and the locks themselves are all run they're all pretty much one man operations and they are typically run by swedish youngsters people probably in their late teens or early 20s oh, hold on All right, I will. So I'll call him back after we're done talking. So, continue. So, Neil, so, so there's no way that a single hander is going to be able to get through these locks. Is that about what you're telling me right now? Well, well, let me put it this way: my imagination. Uh, I don't know how anyone could do it single-handedly. The first time we were there, the first night when we were in soda shopping, we met a French sailor who had. Who had he said he'd done it single-handedly? Although halfway through he said that his wife had come halfway along, and but she was no longer on the boat. Um, and I can understand why because the nickname in Sweden is the divorce ditch. <laughs> um, that's what they call the Yotta Canal informally, and you can see why because it's easy to get into. Uh, fights with your loved ones, especially if they're not that experienced. But I don't know how you could do it without at least two other people. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so essentially, you begin at the staging area. You've got one person with a with a bow line, one person with the stern line, and you pull the boat in. And typically, they will group you together because that's just efficient. And I have a thirty six foot boat, um, and I think that and there were in most locks there's room for a total of four boats about that size. So you know what they'll do is they'll group you together, and so if you if you do decide to go faster than the other folks, you know you want to get up to the lock the next lock quickly. It doesn't avail you anything because they the operators all speak on walkie talkies, and they know that there'll be another two boats along in a minute. So you just have to wait till they show up anyway. So typically you'll keep going at the speed limit, which is five knots. If you do want to go less than five knots, you all you do end up doing is keeping the other people in your group waiting. So it doesn't make any sense to either go too fa faster than anyone else or go slower than anyone else. And that's very sort of, that's very much in tune with um, Swedish egalitarianism. Um, but anyway, back to the basics of getting through a lock. So you go in, you'll typically, as I said, have four or five fenders on the lock side and four or five fenders on the outside, just because once the water comes in and they let the water in quite fast, your boat's, um, your boat's bow will want to move across, move out away from the wall, just from the force of the water hitting it. And you don't want that to happen. So what you do with the lines uh, is that probably every 10 feet protruding out of the stone is an iron bar that typically looks like a piece of rebar. And it's, it protrudes about three or four feet, uh, inches out. So you have to be careful with how you walk. And then on the end of it is a large ring about the size of a dinner plate. So what they recommend you do for the bow line is you make a big bowline, you fit, fit it over the ring, and then you leave it down on the ground so that it's against the rebar, so that any tension is taken up by the rebar. And then you lead that down through a block on the bow and then run it back to the cockpit. So 
as the water comes in and the boat starts to rise, that line will start to go slack. So it's very important for whoever is in the cockpit, i.e. the skipper, me in, in, in our case, just to keep grinding on that winch and taking up the slack and taking up the slack um, because the water, as I said, will push your bow out into the middle of the lock, which you don't want. Now, are there other boats right next to you? Are, they, uh, are you crammed in there where you're basically yeah. bumper to bumper with other boats? So typically you have, uh, they always put us in the back and that was just because uh, the boats with us always took the lead and once, you know, so we were always number four in, but typically there'll be four boats in a lock if they're average size boats. If you've got a couple of smaller ones, they can fit in more, but yes, the, the locks are not wide. So they can typically take two boats abreast and there's usually four or five feet of gap between us. Uh, and in front of us, there'll be another, three or four feet between you and the boat in front but you know usually for an average side boat for your boat for sea dream or for mine octurus uh there would no be no more than four boats in the lock okay uh, but you're not close enough that you're going to be bumping the bumpers with the other boat on the other side of the lock that's what i was wondering if you're going to hold each other in the lock but that's not going yeah to be no case. no you're not you're not the, if you bump against the side if you bump sides against a boat that's because you're not doing your job properly on the bow with the bow line okay so you so need to have, you need to have one person on the bow and one person on the stern line at least then right yes exactly right and the stern line is easier because of the fact that the water is cut you go in nose first so the the bow is taking the brunt of the water rushing in through the sluice gates the, the, the stern, there's a lot less pressure on the stern. So what you can do, I put my daughter on the stern. My daughter's a strong girl too, but she's not as strong as my son who is built uh, like, a, like a bodybuilder almost. So she just, all she had to do as the, as the boat came up was just to, uh, as the water level rose, was just to keep tightening and tightening and tightening so the stern didn't drift out afterwards. Um, and to give you an idea of the time, it typically takes... I would say a good five minutes to get everyone in there snug, maybe five to 10 minutes to make sure everyone's squared away where they should be. And this is all overseen by the lock keeper. Um, and then probably another 10 minutes to go up the, you know, varies. Some locks are 15 feet, some are 20 feet um, to go up to, to raise the water level. And then, you know, the, the, you leave uh, in an orderly way. No one's trying to jostle or, or race anybody. So to go through a lock, typically 30, 35 minutes, provided you get there when it's open and there's no one coming the other way. Um, and also provided that none of the big passenger ferries are in the vicinity because there's a couple of big, beautiful, white vintage boats from the 19th century that take people on passenger cruises. People, if you want to do the Yodder Canal and you don't have your own boat, you don't want to rent a boat or charter one, you can still do it on one of these boats. And these boats, because they have 50, 60, 70 people on, these are always given the right away. So if you approach a, a lock and, he's, and someone's coming the other way in a big passenger boat, you're out of luck. They're going to uh, give priority to the big passenger boat. Now, when you went through this, you got a drop keel on your boat, so you didn't have any problem with draft. Um, did any of the boats that you were with have any trouble with the draft? Because I looked at the profile on the locks, and it looked as you got closer to the side, which makes sense, it's going to be shallower than in the middle, which I think was 6 point, or no, 3.3 meters or something like that. And uh, so did, you, uh, did anybody 
start dragging bottom that you knew of? We didn't see anybody. The only people that we know it happened to was us. Um, um, and it didn't, and it happened because of the fact that uh, we got to, I think on two separate occasions, we got to a lock. They were taking a long time to open. And there was a sort of, it was just a topography of the place. We started to get blown sort of sideways. And as you know, I have a cutaway four keel boat with an alarming um, prop walk to stern. You know, it straightens up once I get some motion. Um, but just a couple of times, we, um, I was dealing with that and the wind came up and I came a little closer than I would have liked. If you stay in the middle of the, of the lock, of the, of the canal, you're fine. But it does come up quite uh, quickly once you get closer. So if you get just within a couple of times, I was within maybe four feet of the edge of the canal and I just got a slight, just a little noise, a slight, you know, brushing against the bottom. It certainly wasn't enough to do any damage. It was just a reminder to be, um, you know, to be on my best behavior. Let me put it that way. Um, and to be cognizant of the situation. But um, no, I didn't see anyone else have any, any, any problems. And they keep it very well dredged. So as long as you meet the, 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 the depth requirement, you don't have to worry about that and stay in the middle. You won't run aground. But what about when you run up against the passenger ferries? Those look pretty wide <coughs> and big. They look sort of, the pictures I've seen them look fairly intimidating if I had to pass them head on. Yes, that's true. Well, um, the, uh, we, they passed us, we were on on there maybe for 10 days and they passed us probably six or seven times. But each time we were, um, it happened, we were either in a marina and we saw them go by or we were on the staging area right in front of the lock where it's, you know, because you are pulling up onto a jetty, basically, uh, it's been dredged and there's no issue about about clearance. Um, I think one time we did go by one and we kept over to the right a little bit over to starboard, but we were there was still six or seven feet from us from the, the, the bank. If you're six or seven feet away, you're okay. But if you're any less than that, it gets too shallow. Um, and the other thing you do have to be aware of that happened to us, and I didn't see it happen to anyone, anybody else, but I'm sure it does happen to a lot of people, is that... It, it, and everything happens in these kind of situations for a reason. The Swedes, the, the Yotta Canal said to us right at the beginning when we checked in, they said, don't move over to the edge until you're actually onto the staging area to the jetty. And there's actually sort of signposts to say, you know, stay in the middle. And if you do pull over just even 20 metres, maybe 50, I'm talking about 30 feet, 40 feet, something like that. There's a lot of overhanging trees there. And on one occasion, um, instead of just pulling over to the jetty, I pulled over just before the jetty. And I heard the very unwelcome sound of my mast and my masthead interacting with one of the local laurel trees or maple trees. <laughs> so there wasn't any damage done. I'm going about half a knot. But it's just one of those things. You hear it and you it's it's not a good feeling. So, again, that I think was on the first day. And uh, that was a lesson that I learned and it didn't happen again. Um, so as far as the distances are concerned, um, it's possible, depending on whether or not you're in a lock or on a lake, to go a vastly different amount of, of distance. When you're just on the, on the canal, 
you, uh, the guide will tell you, I mean, for instance, I'm looking at the guide now. So from soda chopping, which is the first real town, to the town of Norsholm, which is at the entrance to Lake Roxon, that's 12 nautical miles. Um, and they tell you that that will take six hours. So, um, well, why does it take so long? That sounds like you're only doing two nautical miles. And the reason is, is because there's five or six locks. So as you approach a lock, typically there will be um, a, a big traffic light with either a red light or a green light. And they're just letting you know um, that you can't come in any time soon. So you'll pull over to the staging area and when the light and then the gates will open, but you don't go in until the lights go green. They've got their reasons for that, I guess, because some people go in too fast and they hit the gates or whatever. Um, and then the other thing that keeps you waiting sometimes is the bridges. You know, there's no requirement that you dismast the boat. So there's a lot of bridges that you have to go through. Um, and most of those are operated remotely via some sort of CCTV system. But still, they'll let you know that you can't approach. There'll be a red light in front. Um, and the bridges are really a, a, a miracle to behold. They, they, some of them rise up on a hinge at one side, some pull back, some swing inward or some swing outward. And others, a couple of beautiful ones that we saw near the end of our journey, are on at the bottom of towers that then they raise up both the left and the right at the same time. So it's like watching a railroad, not a railroad crossing ground. It's like watching a plank of air levitate into the into the sky. So when you see that, that's actually very cool. But all of the, these things contribute to sort of in, in not inhibiting your progress, but limiting what you can do. So it's unusual if you're not on a lake, it, you can't really expect to go more than 12, 14 nautical miles a day, I would say. Okay, okay. So um, talk about some of the charm that you uh, felt when you, when, you, you, when you went through the canal. Did you stop a lot of the... Uh, I'm following this across Sweden on Google Earth right now, and it looks like you go through a lot of little charming villages. Did, did you pull over and enjoy those a lot? Oh, yes, absolutely, we did. I mean, um, I think of the 10 days that we were on the boat, I think we were only in a place in the middle of nowhere, which I'll talk about in a second how that happens. Um, um, I think that only happened once. The rest of the time, we were either in marinas that were next to tiny little villages and towns, um, or we were actually at staging areas in front of um, locks because we got there too late and the lock had already closed. And with each of these sort of places, if you want to, you can go to the, the marina and grab something to eat if you're hungry, if you don't have anything on the boat. Um, but our personal preference was always to walk into town. And we were never more than a 10-minute walk away from a Thai restaurant or a Swedish restaurant or an Italian restaurant. Um, you know, you can go and do your laundry. Um, you can find a place uh, to to do some grocery shopping if you need to do that. Um, so it, even when you're in the middle of the countryside, if you're in a marina, there's the bare essentials that you need. But a lot of the time you are going through um, and I, I wouldn't even say towns. I would say probably t there were two what I would classify as towns. The rest were basically like hamlets um, and they were charming and lovely but they ha and they had everything you need um and and the reason that sometimes you'll be out in the middle of nowhere 
is because of the fact that it's they're all monitored, as I said, uh, between the lock keepers. They talk to each other on walkie-talkies. So if you get through lock 16, for instance, the lock the, and it's, say, they close at five. You know, there's no late working hours there. So, for instance, if you go through a lock at 4.15 in the afternoon and they know that it will take you approximately 15, uh, 45 minutes to get to the next one, they'll just radio ahead and they'll say, hey, we've got four boats coming and now we're closing. And so that that you, you will be allowed through the lock. But if for any reason you can't get to the next lock or the marinas are full and they always know, you know, it's not that the marinas will be full, but the marinas will be beyond the next lock. And they'll tell you, OK, so there are two staging areas that you can stay in. And they might say that to the people who are in the lead boats. And then the boats who are in third or fourth place, like us, we have to stay below the lock. So a couple of times we spent the night in the staging area in the jetty right below the lock. And then we were first through it in the morning. And a couple of times um, we were in the staging area beyond the lock because, um, you know, there was a boat behind us. We were after them. And then there was two boats further up, but they were not through the lock. They were at the staging area at the next lock. And they just coordinate that really well. But that particular time I was there with my family, we were right in the middle of nowhere, sweeping green fields, bulrushes everywhere, mosquitoes, but not, I mean, it wasn't unpleasant, cows chewing the cud and this glorious sunset that just filled the sky. And it was just, it was spectacular. So you get um, as much, you can get away from it if you want to. If you want to just stop in the middle of nowhere, you can, and then you just pick up with the next convoy, so to speak, the next time they come along, however long later that is. So is it a problem if you decide to, to leave your convoy and join another convoy? Uh, is there a problem with that because well, they may it, be full? But... Yeah, it is. If there's, uh, if, if there's a group of, say, four, then you probably are going to have to wait until after they've gone through the next lock, and then they'll let, and then of course the it comes. Uh, then of course whoever whatever traffic is next comes down, and then when the gate opens, then you'll be allowed in. So you will get bumped if you if you if there is a group immediately behind you the next time that that late, uh, lock opens. So in general, uh, people don't tend to do it. You can do it if you want to. Um, you sort sort of to get away from it all. But if you do, you will pay a price with time. Um, so I think most people that do spend time in France actually don't spend too much time on the on the in the lake in the canal. I think they go to the lake. So you can spend a lot of time in Lake Roxen. You can spend a lot of time in Lake Vatten. Um, Vatten is 18 miles across. Roxen is 15. Both beautiful, beautiful lakes with castles and you can pull over there are places that you can pull over and a lot of anchorage spots um and the best one is actually right at the end lake vannon which is about 50 miles across and that place is absolutely breathtaking um gorgeous gorgeous lake with some wonderful um anchorages and the, i would actually for those of your listeners who are on um social media if you're on Instagram, there is a feed from a yacht, a Holberg Rassi, called Sailing Ingrid Marie. If you just Google that, and they spend an awful lot of their summer in Lake Vannon, and some of the places they go are absolutely breathtaking. They're absolutely picture book um, anchorages. So I think that's what a lot of people do. I mean, there are Swedes who spend the whole summer in that in the Yotta Canal system. Um, but if you are going um, 
you know, off, what's the word, off grid for a few days. You'll do it in the lake rather than the canal. Okay. So is there, when you buy your ticket, uh, your pass for the canal, is there a time limit that you buy it for? Are you charged by the number of days you want to spend on the canal? How is that done? Um, so, yes, you are given, um, I mean, they tell you that the minimum you should really take is, uh, you know, you, sh you shouldn't try to do it in less than six days. And six days would be really, really pushing it. But when you buy your ticket, you buy it for either the high season or the shoulder season before or the shoulder season afterwards. Now, off the top of my head, I don't remember, uh, but I can tell you it's almost definitely, you know, high boating season in Sweden is typically from um, midsummer, so around June 20th to probably August 15th. That's the high season. And if you buy a pass for the high season, you pay more, obviously, but you can, you know, and they'll give you... I don't know whether they give you the whole of the season or whether they give you a 30-day window. I don't remember that off the top of my head, and I can't see it in the guide. But typically, they'll give you long enough. And then if you go want to go before June 20th, it's a cheaper price, or after, June, after um, say, August 20th, sometime around then. So you can spend less if you want to. But I do believe that the window of time you've got within the, those seasons is the same, whether you're in high season or shoulder season. Okay, give us an estimate of what you paid for going through. So it was eight hundred dollars that I paid in um, uh, that I paid the year before uh, COVID, and because of the fact that uh, I was not able to use that ticket, I think they gave me a fifty percent discount. So I ended up paying twelve hundred dollars, <laughs> which is more, you know. But but yeah, but if you go high season, uh, it'll cost you around eight hundred bucks. Okay, okay. Now, it looks like I'm, I'm towards the uh, western side of the canal now. I've been putting a track all the way through on Google Earth to follow it, so I'm zooming in and zooming out. But it looks to me like you end up in several river uh, rivers as well as canals. Is that right? So, so yes and no. The, the Yotta, it's, it's called the Yotta Canal, but that's actually a bit of a, a misnomer because the Yotta Canal ends, finishes sort of two-thirds of the way through. Um, it ends at a place called uh, Sjortorp, S-J-O-T-O-R-P. Um, and so that is actually 100 nautical miles from the beginning at Mem, Sjortorp. And that's when you enter Lake Vannon. Um, and so, and as I said, Lake Vannon is actually, I think I gave the wrong, um, the wrong size. Lake Vannon is actually 64 miles across. And then it, you, you, you leave Lake Vannon at a place called Vannersborg, and that's where the, the other canal begins, to, which takes you down to Gothenburg, and that's called the Trollhatta Canal, ah, which okay. is yeah. spelt like troll, T-R-O-L-L, -L, and then H-A-T-T-E, and that's about 45 miles long. Now there, it's a canal to start with, and then it turns into the Gothenburg River. Um, it's, you know, when it turns into the Gothenburg River, it's a little bit wider, and there's no locks, um, but um, it, you know it, it's very similar. It's a similar landscape and a similar vibe, and that'll take you all the way to Gothenburg. Is that a um, is that a different ticket, or is that all? Yes, started? It's, a it's it's a different ticket, and it's about it cost me about hundred euros. So uh, this is not cheap, um, you know. But having said that, you can take as long you know you can take a good long time while you're there. 
you can you've got almost unlimited use of the marinas and the, you know at no no extra charge um and as you know france you know you put your boat uh, take a boat offshore and something breaks it'll probably cost you more than 800 dollars anyway <laughs> um so for this quality of really unique wonderful experience um you know where you and you're also learning a new skill for most people um you know it doesn't matter how how experienced you are offshore if you've never been through a a, a lake and a lock system you're going to be learning some new some new skills and you're going to be meeting new people so it's to me it wasn't the money was not an issue. I, d I don't want to sound too bourgeois about that, but I think it was perfectly good value. I have no problem. And as I said, everything works like it's supposed to. The marinas were never closed. The bathrooms in the marinas were always always open and always clean. The the lift the um, the, uh, the 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 bridges worked like they were supposed to. And the, the small town or countryside feel is so charming. You know the. Um, the Swedish lock keepers, as I said, I mean, you could make a calendar out of them. The, both the girls and the boys were just gorgeous, young Nordic youth. Uh, they were incredibly friendly. They spoke perfect English. Um, and, you know, there's something incredibly charming about going down a, a, a tiny little uh, a canal um, with cows grazing either side of you and seeing children jumping off of jetties from the, you know, next to their country houses, um, and one spot, for instance, that we went to, um, there was what looked like a Boy Scout. He was operating a manual bridge with a sort of a cog and a wheel and a pulley system. And he was basically just sitting there reading a book until someone alerted him. There was someone coming on his walkie talkie. He jumps up. You can see him jumping up and seeing us coming down down the canal. And he gets to work turning the wheel by hand and it pulls this little traffic bridge open left and right so we can go through and it's just you know it is it's unbelievably charming and the the Swedes are very proud of this place um so and in a couple of places the the people who go through provide spectator sport for the locals so uh what i mean by that is for instance when you get to lake boren there is a flight i believe of six or seven locks right next to each other so as you enter exit one lock as the gates open all you're doing is entering the next one and the next one and the next one and that's because the elevation is so severe that you know one lock can't do it um and in that particular place which is just by the town of bordensburg there is actually an ice cream kiosk and chairs set up and the locals just sit there for hours eating ice cream and watching these strange people on boats working the lock system going up and going down and that's it. and a band comes along and plays a couple of times a day it's just uh, you couldn't imagine this happening in too many other places in the world it's quite charming well it sounds it sounds to me like neil you really sort of roller skated through the louvre on this deal <laughs> well that's not a compliment is it you, no, i just think I'm not, i, I no. probably went too fast yeah that's what i'm i'm looking at I, it here i'm saying Wow, you could spend a whole summer here, not nine, ten days, but a whole summer going through this very easily. So, yeah. Yes. Well, here's the thing. I mean, yes, it's it's not my style to rush through normally. Um, I like to do a deep dive, which is why the boat is still in Sweden seven years after I bought it, where my initial plan was to take it through the French canals and join you in the Mediterranean. Um, however, what you have to bear in mind is that I'd had this is my first time back in Sweden for three years because of the pandemic. 
I wanted to get the boat to the West Coast and I had a backlog of people who wanted to come and sail with me. I had five different crews who I had over the summer who I had to accommodate. And um, so I just figured, okay, this is the amount of time I, I had given myself. And I actually had wanted to take a couple more days, but I got COVID right before I entered the canal, about a week before. And that stripped a couple more days off. So I would certainly go back to the Yachty Canal if I had the chance and I had a, a spare summer. Um, and I could quite happily spend a month in Lake Vannon because it's it's wonderful. Um, the only, I would say the 10 days we were on the boat, nine days were absolutely idy idyllic. It was absolutely fantastic. But we had a bit of a rough go of it once we got to Lake Vannon. Um, and I'll explain to you why. So the, the exit is at the southwest corner. And as I said, the place is called Vannersburg. Um, <clears throat> so you leave, you finish, you officially finish the, the Yotta Canal at Shotor, which is on the eastern side of the lake. You traverse the lake, and then when you get to Vannersburg, you enter the Trohata Canal. So um, we crossed, we left Schoburg early, we'd spent the night there, and I think we left about 8 a.m. And I was looking and I saw that it was about, uh, as I said, 60-something nautical, 64 nautical miles. And I thought, well, it's a long haul to do in one day, but we'll just see, you know, if, if, if you know, what the story... Anyway, so we got about halfway across and there was a peninsula jutting, jutting out with a bunch of really fantastic little hideaway hidey holes or whatever and it was quicker to go through this peninsula which you could do um rather than going up and around it but when we came out to the other side and we were headed towards Vanlersburg we were only 25 nautical miles away however we were met with 25 knot headwinds right on the nose um and my boat does not go to weather particularly well in the first place and as anyone who sailed a lot will know lake sailing the, the waves can be a real pain they're hitting you instead of hitting you once every six seven seconds they're hitting you every second and a half every two seconds so it's really hard to get any kind of momentum going um and the water was coming over the bow and then we uh, some, some late afternoon thunderstorms developed and my family were just very uncomfortable i hadn't really um, alerted to them what the conditions would be and in the morning when we left it was a beautiful sunny morning and I had read the weather forecast but um, I hadn't quite expected it to be as unpleasant as it was um, so we persevered for about an hour hour and a half and uh, my children were not happy they were expecting it to be champagne cruising all the way or they, you know they'd been in a, in a canal with with no wind and you know flat water so finally, I turned around and we went back to the peninsula. We ducked into a bolt hole and I made some dinner. We opened a bottle of wine and I said, look, here's what we're going to do tomorrow. We're going to go back into that wind because that's the only place we can go. And the weather forecast said conditions were going to be the same for another seven days. But I just had to adjust their expectations downward. I said, look, you know, we're going to we're going to go with a with a reefed main and a reefed uh, jib. And if the ladies want to stay below, they can. It will just be me and my son topside. And I said, but we, we got to expect to get wet. We got to expect to have a lot of water coming over the bow. I said, it might only be 25 nautical miles as the crow flies. I said, but it's probably going to be twice as much as that um, with, the, with the zigzagging we're going to have to do with the tacking. So, and that was a lesson 
that I learned too in terms of France, in terms of um, adjusting expectations. If you do that at the beginning, set the expectations, and people don't tend to get as disappointed. So we left the next morning around 7 a.m. We were reefed everywhere, um, and it did take us. I think I looked at my track, and the 25 miles from where we exited the the the, the, the uh, bolt hole to get to Vannersburg, the 25 miles took us 56, 57 nautical miles to traverse. That was a long, hard day of beating into weather, um, and of course, because I had the um, because I had a reef in the main, I had a big bunt in the mainsail, and what was happening was the boat was getting hit by thunderstorms every 40 minutes, maybe squall after squall, and the rainwater was collecting in the bunt of the sail, and then when it filled up and we hit a big a big wave. Guess what? Uh, we, my son and I, got absolutely soaked sitting in the uh, in the cockpit. But by then, he knew what to expect, and I think we got into Vannersburg at about 7 p.m. and the, the the wind had eased, the sun was shining, and we had a a big meal with I don't know four bottles of wine or something like that. <laughs> so it was fine when we got to the other end, but um, it was a very different experience for all of us than uh, the canal that had come before. Now, do you see charter boats going through this canal? Can somebody go over and charter a boat in uh, either side and go in? Do you see much of that like you will everywhere else in the world? So I, the charter boat scene in Sweden is quite drastically different. I believe there is a dream yacht charter um, uh, operation in Stockholm. All the rest that there are are local companies of which I... I, I've never seen before. There's nothing like Sunsail. It's nothing like the moorings. And the people that we did meet that were chartering, we met two or three people, were doing it through sort of what I would call like an Airbnb system. It's just individuals, private parties who advertise and then will just charter their boat to complete strangers, which seems to me to be a huge act of faith. But the way the Swedes are, I think they, if they rent to their fellow Swedes, they sort of trust them. They feel that they're, you know, that. I think they think Swedes think that all Swedes are good sailors. So <clears throat> to answer your question, we didn't come across anyone in the canal who we who who were who were chartering. We met a couple of people in Stockholm who were doing it, but nowhere else. Um, you know, and you'd be hard pushed to do it because if you're chartering, you'd have to have a base to deliver it to at the other end. And as I said, there aren't any. So everyone that we saw seemed to be on their own boat, as far as I could see. And it was typically Swedes and Finns, some Danes, some Germans, a couple of Polish people. Um, and, uh, and that was about it. Did you develop much of a community with the group that you were going through with? Uh, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a sensitive question. Um, so we had a Swedish boat. I mean, wherever I go, I always get compliments on the boat because the boat, if for those of you who don't know, is a 1966 Allied Seabreeze yawl uh, with an American flag. So it's very unusual to see an American flagged boat there. And it's certainly even rarer to see a boat from the 1960s and a yawl. So we met a lot of people. People were very interested in the boat, very chatty. And, you know, the first thing they say, because it's on the livery on the back, it says Annapolis, Maryland. That's where she's flagged. Um, people say, well, did you bring the boat over, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we got on very well with almost everybody. Now, in the group of four that we were with, there was a Finnish boat, 
a Swedish boat and they were really pleasant. And then there was a German boat in front of us. And I don't know whether or not it's something about the Germans and the English, but he didn't like me and I, in short order, didn't like him. Um, and I think he'd done the Yotta Canal before and he really knew what he was doing, to be fair. It was him, his wife and his daughter. And he was very impatient with us for the first two or three locks because we were trying to figure it out. I mean, we were trying to obey the instructions, but the thing with the that I mentioned about the bow with the uh, the block, um, I was instead of putting a bowline on over the the um, the loop, I was actually having my son because my son's a big strong boy uh, actually hold it, and he was actually having trouble holding it because the water pressure was huge. So that was that was that's on me. I, I take it. Uh, so we we fixed the problem, but because for whatever reason, he just decided he, I don't know, maybe he didn't like Americans, whatever. This particular German guy decided to give me kind of a hard time and tell me that I was wasting his time. Um, and he said that sort of quite loudly as we were in the other lock, in a lock with the other boats. And I took a beat because I don't, I try to avoid confrontation in general, but then my, my reptile brain kicked in, I'm afraid. And I, I said to him very loudly, why are you in such a hurry? because I'd seen that he was German. I said, do you have a country to invade or, you know, what? <laughs> so at that point, uh, it, he sort of, he harumphed and he shut up. Um, and then I, I turned to the Finnish people who were next to him and I said, hey, I'm sorry for keeping you waiting. I'm just trying to learn how to do this. And they were very nice. And the wife offered a big beaming smile and she said, she said, don't worry, we're not in a hurry at all. And I said, oh, well, I'm glad someone has the right attitude in this lock. So after that, my, you know, I have a very low, I mean, I'm very high, um, or I don't know if it's a low, I don't get embarrassed and I don't have much shame. I've lived in America far too long for that. But my son and my daughter, who are both barely out of their teens, they were apps, they were sort of embarrassed, but they, this isn't the first time their father has embarrassed them. It's part of the job description, I think. Um, I think my son was most perturbed because he was running the bow line and the, the German's daughter was running the stern line. And she was a very pretty blonde haired, blue eyed German girl. And so she was standing right next to him for most of the, 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 the uh, traverses that we did through the locks. And I think they were striking up quite a good rapport until, you know, I got into it with her father. <laughs> and after that, there was a wall of silence. So uh, too bad. <laughs> Summer romance gone. Yeah. OK, he'll have to find his jolly somewhere else. <laughs> so now was this at the end of the summer you did this then um no this was so i got to i usually go to sweden in the second or the third week of june um and i i picked up the boat on the east coast where she's been wintered for the past three years um and i'd already had quite an adventure going down the east coast and revisiting my favorite spots in the stockholm archipelago so I think we went, yeah, we went into the, I'd, I'd launched the boat, I think, June 20th, June 21st, June 22nd, and I didn't enter the canal until July 25th. So I'd already been on the boat for more than a month. Um, and as I said, we got down to um, Gothenburg about 10 days later. So, um, and then I only had about another seven days until my flight back to London. So, uh, so I beg your pardon, to LAX, so to Los Angeles. So, uh, yeah, it, it was v very much towards the end. Once I got to Gothenburg, we had, I think, six or seven days on the West Coast before I put the boat away. Now, where did you put it away, Neil? 
So um, this is, uh, again, where I'm indebted to Andy and Mia at 59 North. They had taken one of their big um, swans to a place called Vindu Marin, which is in a, it's on an island, I believe, called Orust, which is about, um, it's probably about 30 miles north of um, Stockholm. There's a lot of beautiful inlets up there. You can sort of go up there. It's almost like rivers up there, but you can go up there. And Vindu Marine actually is a fascinating place because the classic archetypal um, Swedish archipelago boat is called a Vindu, uh, V-I-N-D-O, and it's got the two little dots over the O, so I think it's pronounced Vindor. Um, they are real cult boats in Sweden. Um, they're beautifully designed, but they're made for the archipelago specifically. So they have the bow pulpit with the opening at the front with the little uh, steps that you can step off. Um, they're made for inshore or coastal cruising, but they're beautifully designed. Um, and if anyone's interested in that particular boat, I would recommend the um, YouTube uh, channel called Sailing Magic Carpet which is a beautiful young couple. Uh, Aladino is Italian and his partner, Maya, is Canadian. And they actually restored one of these Vindu boats. And they were sailing her, I think, they've taken her through the canals and they're actually on the west coast of Sweden. But anyway, Vindu Marine used to build these boats and the company went out of business, I believe, in the late 70s or the early 80s. But the boatyard is still there and it's considered one of the best boatyards in Sweden. In fact, I was chatting to a lock keeper just outside of Lake uh, Lake Vannon, and I told him where I was taking the boat, and he raised his eyebrows. He said, oh, you're going to the best boatyard in Sweden. So um, I had sort of that recommendation, and as I said, Andy and Mia had taken one of their swans there and, and really praised the work, and they have very high standards. So and I, I think I probably mentioned in the last podcast, I was very unhappy and very dissatisfied with the work that I had done um, back in Oregon, um, at Greppen Marine, because they changed ownership and the new owners really were atrocious. So it was very important to me because I'm having a lot of work done on the boat that I was in competent uh, hands. And um, so far, they've been fantastic. Well, if I'm on the right spot, it looks like it's on almost a little peninsula north. And uh, there's that marina, which has a bunch of boats standing on the hard. And then Around the corner, there's another another marina with everything in the water. Is that yeah, the, the, the nearest town is called Hennen. Okay. You, so that's where you are, and there's a big bridge immediately to the east of the of the marina. So yeah, that's the right place. Um, uh, and as I said, that's where the boat is now, and she's having um, she's had a lot of work done. She's had a uh, a new water tank, a 40-gallon water tank put up front, um, a roller furling, uh, because Andy had taken, my pre the previous owner of the boat had taken the original roller furling off and replaced it with a Hankton system. Um, so I'm ha a new windlass. I think I mentioned all this in the previous podcast, but they've done beautiful work so far. There's a couple of little bits and pieces. But I will be taking the boat back to Vindu Marin for the winter this year, after I've done a more deep dive into the Swedish West Coast, which I will do starting um, July 3rd of this year, so um, barely a month away. So is your boat in the water or out of the water there? No, it's out of the water in a shed. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's it's not usual to keep boats in the water there because the water freezes. So you usually have the choice that you can have them on the hard 
uh, wrapped uh, in some sort of material or you can actually have them in a heated shed. And since I was having the work done as well, you pay more money. But um, I like the idea of my boat being kept warm for the winter. I think it's the least she deserves. <laughs> How much is that going to cost you for the winter? Just estimate. Um, so I believe it's about... $3,000, I think. They just sent me a new proposal for this year that I haven't opened and read. Um, you know, and this it's three times what I was paying in um, in uh, Oregon. But in Oregon, I was on the hard. Um, so I wasn't, and I wasn't in, in a shed. I wasn't in a, a shed, whether heated or unheated. Um, and I was actually, and the boats was supposedly wrapped, but when I came to, to, to the boat to have it launched, there was no wrap on it. And they told me that it blown off in a, in a thunderstorm a couple of weeks before. So I had no way of actually knowing if that was true, if it had ever been wrapped or I guess I should have asked them to send me some pictures, but, um, yeah, Vindu is a little more expensive than most, but it's well worth it. Uh, I think in terms of what you get and in terms well, of, well, you know, compared to what I paid in the Mediterranean and what I'm paying in Trinidad for crying out loud, that's, that's a bargain. That's it real, is. It is really inexpensive compared to what I'm paying right now. I'm paying, uh, about $7,500 to be on the hard for 10 months in Trinidad, which is pretty expensive. I was really surprised how expensive it was, especially in what I consider a, a, a third world country. So, yeah. All right. Well, hang on a second. Let me make sure that I'm giving you the right information. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. The warm storing of the boat is about 2400 um, which is great. And the rest is bits and pieces. Yeah, I don't want to give you the wrong information and have your 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 listeners call in and say that Neil guy doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. But yeah, I mean, it, there are other costs, you know, the drying, the folding and sails, the battery check and disconnect, the cleaning. The, the, it, the Yeah, but you're going to get that anywhere you go. That's going to be you're the You're going to do that anywhere yeah. you go. But yeah, for, for, just for the uh, for the warm storage, it's about 2400 for the, you know, for the year, which I it's, you know, it's excellent. I got no complaints about that. So what's your itinerary for the is it this summer? Yeah, I guess it's this summer. It's coming up, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, Jeez. well, actually, actually, that is um, a TBA. That is to be announced. I mean, it, there's a couple of places that I've been to before um, from last summer, which I really want to go back to, Marstrand and Smorgan. Um, but there are so many places to do a deep dive there. And I've got... Um, and I've got three different crews coming and they're all flying into Gothenburg. So my approach is going to be very much like it was when I got to Stockholm the first time in the sense that Stockholm then was my base. And I would go out for 10 days or two weeks at a time and then come back to, you know, let old crew off and get new crew in. I don't really want to be too ambitious because of the fact that I am acquainting myself with new systems on the boat. I'm going to be probably doing more anchoring since I've now got a proper windlass. <laughs> um, so I'm, I don't have any ambition to run up to the border in, uh, with Norway to run into the fjords or to go across the Kattegat into Denmark. 
I'm actually just going to take my sweet time. Um, and the idea is probably I won't be going more than 150 or 200 nautical miles away from um, from Gothenburg because you don't need to. There are a zillion spots to duck in and explore. And some days are maybe I'll do 30 nautical miles and sometimes maybe I'll do five. I'm just going to follow my nose and see how it works out. Now, when you were in Gothenburg, did you stay in Gothenburg a day or two to get to know the city? Uh, yes, I did. So, um, one, I had a couple of days before my, before my crew arrived and I had a couple of days at the end too. Gothenburg is really a charming town. Um, it's got a very lively art scene. It's got excellent restaurants. Um, it's a little, it feels a little more cosmopolitan. Um, I think I mentioned to you that I had some rig work done in our last podcast by an Australian who was part of a, a rigging and sailboat maintenance team. And they were all, I think there were seven or eight of them. Five of them were Australian and three of them were Kiwis from New Zealand. And they'd all come to the West Coast for the sec- exactly the same reason, because they met Swedish girls when they were backpacking. <laughs> um, and they sort of set up uh, in, in Sweden in with little um, boat maintenance con- uh, uh, concern there. So... Um, the food is better on the West Coast. The sailing is better just because you can get out to the water quickly. There's less barrier islands. But there's still a, a myriad of inlets and tributaries that you can go up and really do some gunk holding if that's what you want to do too. So I think I'm probably as excited now as I've ever been to own the boat and to be in Sweden. I remember the first year when I actually met the boat for the first time because, as you remember, I bought her sight unseen. Uh, in the fall of 2015, and then I met Andy and Mia at the boat uh, nine months later. Well, I was absolutely beside myself with excitement and anticipation that year. And I think this year it's, it's similar in terms of the fact that I'm in sort of new, but still it's got all the virtues that I'm used to with Sweden, but there's going to be some new benefits too. So, yeah, I'm very, uh, very excited to have a good good summer season. Oh, great. Now, I'm looking at Gothenburg right now, and it looks like there's a lot of marinas in that city. Is that right? Yeah, there are a lot of marinas, but some of them are private. Um, there are um, there's the uh, there's the, uh, the the yacht clubs that they have. So it's not always easy to find a guest berth. But I was in the main Gothenburg marina, which is um, on the south side of the river close to there's a, a big bridge. Uh, actually, oh, see yeah, if I... I see it right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's the sort of opera house right next to it and the theater. So you're within steps of everything you need. There's a big shopping center nearby with a gross couple of grocery stores and a liquor store. Um, so it's actually a really nice place to spend two or three days. Um, and I think this year I'm actually going to take between my second and my third group of guests. I think I've got about six days. So I think I'm actually going to take a train or a bus down to Copenhagen and spend a couple of days in Copenhagen. And if I like it, I'll sail down there maybe next year. Um, so, it, yeah, it's um, Gothenburg is terrific. I mean, I love Stockholm. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. But um, Gothenburg looks to have its own special charm as well. So, yeah, so the... Um, the marina that I was in, I think it's I think I think it's called Gothenburg Marina um, and it's in a place called Helsingbron, which is right next to a couple of big bridges. But it's really the the gateway, if you like, to the uh, to the to the uh, the sea right there. OK, OK. 
How many? Um, how many? How many? Do you need to run, Neil? No, no, I don't need to. Okay. Run. I'm sorry. Go ahead. How many? How many crew do you usually get? Is it like me, where you want a, yourself and two others, or do you take like uh, four others? How many people do you get on your boat? So, as you know, the boat is compact because mm -hmm. it's a 1960s design with a big sheer front and aft. So even though it's 35, um, 35 uh, feet on deck. It's uh, she's only 22 at the waterline. So the only time I have four, so three guests plus me, is if we're really close friends. My family, it's no problem. Um, and I, I had a group from the boat that I race with normally where there were four of us. Um, but I'm used to doing overnights with them. And we've raced down to um, Ensenada in Mexico a couple of times together. So we're comfortable with each other. But nonetheless, um, I usually go to places where if people want to get off the boat and spend the night in a hotel or an Airbnb. They can do that, too. And for uh, if there's, you know, females involved, which they usually are, that offers a nice way for them to get a bit of privacy. Um, ideally, two guests is because I have the same um, philosophy as you. Three is best in terms of conversation and rapport. And if someone's getting on your nerves, you can always ask someone else to take up the slack. Um, <laughs> okay, so you so, have the same philosophy, right? You and but you and two others. To, yeah. Um, okay. You know, um, one thing I would actually like to mention that I realised I missed was I didn't talk about how you work in the locks when you're going down because it's very different in the Yotta Canal from the Trollhatta Canal. So. Uh, I explained the system with they have um, rebar and, and loops and you use bolands and you run it down to um, blocks on the bow, et cetera, et cetera. And it's much easier going down because you're just feeding paying line out um, and you're not dealing so much with water swirling in and trying to push you, push your boat across the, the lock. But in the Trohata Canal, um, they've got a very ingenious system in that the walls of the lock have lots of little indentations that are staggered across the wall and they're sort of the size of i don't know a large computer monitor and they go back about eight or ten inches and inside these indentations are these um are what look like cleats basically or small i think you're you, you call it a bit the the big uh, wooden thing at the bow of your boat so they look like little metal bits and what you do is you go down you actually have Everyone on the on the uh, on the whether on the bow or the stern they actually have two lines rather than one each, and the reason is is because you just loop it round the as you um, go down, you start off at the top because you're going in and the water level is at the top of the of the wall. So instead of tying a bowline, you just loop loop a, a line over, and as you go down, you just ease the line out and ease the line out. But at some point, you're going to run out of line, and the the drops in the Trollhatta Canal are bigger; they're sort of 25 or 30 feet. So what you do is you go down, and these these compartments, if you like, suddenly start to appear from the water. When it gets to about your knee level, you'll just attach a new line, your second line around, loop it round and make it taut. And then you just pull the first line, the higher line that's now above your head, you just pull that off. And then you do the same as you go down to the next one, the next one, the next one. And literally every five feet, there'll be a little space in the wall for you to secure your boat with your with your with your extra line. So it's actually a very clever way of doing it. And um, it, it's it, it, it's you know, it solves the you have to do it that way because. Um, when you when you're talking about a 25 foot drop, you don't really want to have 50 feet of line that you're trying to control. It's much better when it's five or six feet and you can reach out and, and attach a new one as you go down. So 
That's how they do it, the Trollhatter Canal, and it made the traversing of the canals much quicker. The, the learning curve was shorter, and the transit time in the lock was quicker. So it's kind of a nice thing to do. And as I said, it, the, the Trollhatter Canal is cheaper too. It's a hundred bucks, so it's a it's a good system. Did uh, did you see anybody uh, tangle lines on? I guess that's what you would worry about is suddenly getting a, an asshole on the line and not feeding out as it should. I, did you ever see that happen? No, no, I, I never, ever did. Um, and I think that they, you know, w- when you're in that situation, um, you just tend to, I think, really just uh, pay attention. You have to pay attention because you've got the lock keeper telling you to pay attention and you've got boats all around you. And the thing is, is that when we were going up, um, you know, if there was a problem of a of a, 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 an issue like that that you're talking about, I always had an extra person in the cockpit to just make sure the line was free, was flaked nicely and was freely running. Um, so, yeah, and I was always keeping an eye on it as well as, uh, you know, so it, it didn't happen, but you could see how it could. So I could see the ideal number would be th- a crew of three, a captain and two crew to do this. Then. Yeah, I think three. I, I couldn't imagine doing it without with at least without at least two people i just i don't know how this frenchman did it uh (laughs) you know i mean you could you could in theory enlist the lock keeper to help you but that's really not um in the spirit of what you're supposed to be doing because the lock keeper has responsibility for four boats rather than just one and if he's helping you with these lines he's not watching what else is going on so uh, yeah i i couldn't imagine doing it without three people Okay. Well, Neil, anything else we ought to talk about before we call it a podcast? I think um, that's just about it. Um, I would just say that if, you, if you've never done any interior um, water, well, you know, water systems, if you've never done a lock or you've never gone up a river, you really should. It really behooves you because it's, it, people might turn their nose up and say, well, it's not sort of like real sailing. Well, no, it's not sailing. But it's still boat work. Um, it's still you still have to know what you're doing, and you will have a whole new experience. I know you've been up rivers plenty of times. Well, not, you've been not, up- not that many. Let's see. What uh, the only one I've been up is the Guaguiva River up to uh, Sevilla. Sevilla. Oh, okay, okay. I just remember that story very well because I remember your podcast and talking about getting eaten alive by mosquitoes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, for some people, maybe for the more adventurous people, you know, inland waterways are too tame um too domesticated but for me they have a rich um uh value all themselves and they tie into an experience of my childhood where it was myself my brother and my father on the river thames when i was seven and eight years old and so there's a big nostalgia factor to me too um and you know my children were not particularly enthused once they actually had to, when they saw the reality of going through the locks because they thought it was sort of hard work and I think they were expecting to be let off the hook a little more. Um, And my daughter especially, the first four or five locks, um, they got a little irritated. But once they learned a new skill and they started taking pride in it, they really enjoyed it. They really enjoyed being part of an active uh, experience. And in some ways, if you're going through five or six or seven locks a day and each time you're pulling over to a staging area, you're getting off the boat, you're tying off the boat, you, you know, then you're when you go through, you're untying the boat, and you're guiding it through. 
it's physically active and it's quite mentally demanding and you have to pay attention. And for some people, that's actually more uh, energetic than just sitting on a boat going downwind with a cocktail in your hand. So, um, you know, it, it's I would encourage people to do it if they ever get a chance. It's not something you can do in too many places of the world. And Sweden is, is a fabulous place to do it. All right, I want to join. I want to join you sometime when you're doing that. So now that I'm a now that I'm a winter sailor, I do have my <laughs> summers free. So I'll probably want to join you, not this summer, but maybe next summer. Yeah, and and I will actually just loath as I am to correct you because you are my sailing guru, as you know. At the start <laughs> at, at the start of this show, the intro, you did mention that I'd helped you out last summer. But actually, it was that's right. Uh, it's last winter, exactly it's right. Last winter. That, that's force of habit. I know. So we 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 did that. I think in February, unless yep. I'm much mm-hmm. mistaken. And uh, I guess that's a subject for another podcast. Yes, we need to cover that sometime. I'm going to put a link to your. Uh, I'll try to put a link to your article in the British Weekly where you wrote about that. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. And um, you can always follow me too if you're interested on um, on uh, on on. Instagram, excuse me, I'm forgetting my words, and my website, sailingoptourist.com, and I'll actually have an account of my uh, adventures in the Yotta Canal, which will be uh, probably up by the time this posts, so uh, feel free to check that out for more pictures and stuff. All right, Neil, thanks a lot. All right, you're very welcome. Fair winds to you. Okay. Remember, if you're interested in possibly looking into buying my boat, please reach out to me, franz1 at medsailor.com. The website for sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.